Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and I'm really excited about speaking with our guest today. We tried to get him on for the holiday season and talk about haunted houses and horror movies, and I thought it was actually appropriate to have him after Halloween because Halloween starts scary season for many people. Many people are have this trepidation of going home and, and rehashing things with their family potentially, and will that carry on to Christmas? What about those that are starting new relationships? They're going to introduce their significant other to families? That could be scary too. Um, those are some of the things that we are going to cover. We're going to talk about why are we turned on by terror. It seems like every waking moment there is some level of terror that we are exposed to. And when does it start? Does it start in childhood where we're, we're introduced to terror? And why do we crave it? Well, our author is a pastor for over 45 years. He is an author of over 22 books and training manuals as well. He was a panelist on the national television show Ask the Pastor for over 18 years. I love this part. He's also been a, he's also been a worldwide traveler uh, for training and educational development in over 20 countries. He speaks and reads over eight languages as well. That's scary in itself to some people. He's overcome that. So I'd like to interview this expert on why we are turned on by terror, Dr. Mike Merrill. Welcome to the podcast. Good evening, Hamza. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you. And thanks for making the podcast today. I'm very, very happy to do that, calling in from cold Rochester, New York, uh, where it is much more frigid tonight than normal. And some people are terrified of the early onset of winter. Others are quite delighted because they get to go skiing. So it's a mixed bag. I think that may be the theme. I may be overreaching, but I think it's always perception that determines it's the same scenario, but one person may be terrorized by it and another may be overjoyed by it. A great deal of what I uh, teach when I do seminars and conferences and uh, and other such investment in people is that we use four different complexes to be able to deal with reality as we perceive it and our part in that. The uh, first is perceptions, as you mentioned. There are 10 perceptions, I believe, senses of perception. There are five basic emotions. That's the second complex. The third is motivations, how we think about, evaluate, what our culture says we ought to prepare to do, and then our behaviors. Uh, And there are, of course, millions of options and behaviors. But when those four are engaged, they become interactive. So our actions change our perceptions, and our emotions change our motivations. They actually alter them. And so it becomes very much uh, interdisciplinary or interactive between those four. Now, before what would be going interesting is one person's, one person's history of being frightened. For We're talking a lot about fright and terror. One person's perception of terror is that even in the moment at which something frightening is happening, they feel and believe they're actually very safe. They don't feel uh, insecure or destabilized by what's happening around them. They have perspective. They may have maturity or experience. So the very same stimulus, um, a scary movie or frightening uh, somebody sneaking up behind you or something going on in the environment, does not result in an emotionally extreme feeling of terror. It's actually enjoyable. Other people without that experience, that background, or that perspective may be so overwhelmed they faint and uh, to get out of the fear. So it really has to do with the blend of those skills within our life rather than just simply the scary object or movie or whatever there might happen to be uh, that comes into our lives. Now, does that come into, does that go back to childhood and exposure to different scenarios? Because like you said, if I am overwhelmed by fear, I may have inaction, I may not do anything. Versus if I were introduced to these stimuli at a young age, I may embrace it. 
even that is almost too simplified because there are children who everything goes back to our childhood. I mean, the roots, unless you have a different childhood than your adulthood, you really have the roots of every experience you have right now that tie into your your overall um, breadth of experience. But, but here's how the difference could work from one person to another. One person may be uh, very highly visual. They, they are what I call hypersensitive in the visual area. The very best baseball hitters can see faster than the ordinary person. A ball comes from the pitcher's hand to the home plate at 95 miles an hour. There are human beings that can see the ball actually spinning, see where the laces are, and know exactly how to hit it. There are other people it blows by and it's like a bullet, you never even saw it, because they're not as visually uh, cued as, as other people are. So when someone is hypersensitive to visual, and there is, in very young childhood, a mask over a face that's a very terrifying, it does not look like the patterns in that child's brain for what a human face ought to look at, that child can be traumatized by the visual appearance. However, a, a sibling of that same child may be far more auditory and they're terrified by a creaking door, but not by a mask at all. It does not imprint in their brain in the same way. So they don't respond to the visual in the same way that someone else might to, let's say, a cold breeze that blows down your back or an odd taste in your mouth or something that smells rotten or toxic. Each person's blend of their senses, which ones are very intense, which ones are very mild, really has to do with how we respond emotionally to the stimulus that is occurring for us. So a scary movie to one person that sees lights or changes or dripping blood or something like that who's highly visual, that can be extremely terrifying. To another person, that's not scary at all. I mean, just it doesn't imprint on their brain. They have no reaction to it. But creaking sounds or moaning or dissonant uh, saxophones or trumpets are playing, that just creeps them out. The, the nails on a chalkboard, those are for auditory people, and they're terrified by that. So it really has to do with which kinds of senses are impacted uh, in the event that is scary or interesting or thrilling. Mm, okay. Okay. Now you made you, you made a you asked a question about how far back does this go? In yeah. the entire human experience, the one of the aspects of fear or exposure is the startle reflex. If there's a very loud sound right outside your office door, could be a gunshot, could be a backfire, could be somebody slapping a ruler on a table, but you don't know right away what it is you have a startle response to that, and your body reacts in certain ways. One of those startle reflexes, which you cannot control, is sucking your breath in so your body has more oxygen. When did the first startle occur in a, in a baby's life? The moment they were born. And they come into the cold air through the birth canal or by C-section, and they suck in because they're startled. Uh, the typical idea of the doctor slapping a baby on the butt is to get that startle reflex to work and it sucks air into lungs that never had air before and the baby starts crying or, or reacting in some way. So the exposure emotion of startle is the in, initiation of life itself. So it's natural to our experience and we build off of that. It goes all the way back to birth. I love it. I love that. Thank you for that clarification. It's my understanding as humans, there are two fears that we have. The other is conjured or perception, as you were saying. One was that startle reflex, and the other is the fear of falling. So how does that factor in? The fear of falling really has to do with a, a natural human desire to be cuddled. 
uh, from birth, typically in the entire history of humanity, when a baby is born, someone is there, not usually the mother, but an assistant or a midwife or a doctor or some, some family member, who will catch the child dropping out of the birth canal. Human beings are designed in such a way that is really difficult for a mother giving birth to catch her own child. So it becomes a family or a community event. The child then, as they drop, has that starts the startle reflex. They're interactive and sucks in their breath and then wants to be cuddled. When cuddling is not happening, the fear of falling becomes a replacement to that natural desire and the pleasure that occurs with cuddling and skin contact uh, when that's not happening. So that's where that comes from. And then as we go on through our lives, the being out of control, feeling weightless, not being able to get your proprioceptive awareness where your body is in space, where your arms are, having something to grip and hold on to, again, for some people is absolutely terrifying. And for other people, it's mildly amusing which is why we like to go on roller coasters or in fun houses that throw our bodies all around. They, you, some people have that drop sense. You go to some of the big amusement parks and they put you in a harnessed seat, take you way up in the air, 80, 90, 30, 120 feet, and then drop you way down. There are people who absolutely love that and there are people that utterly hate that based on how you see your part in reality where you are. Mm. Now, what about the human element where you, as a younger person, like you said, on a roller coaster or being dropped, that was a huge thrill. But then when you're in your 30s or 40s or middle-aged, your body can't handle that anymore. What does that factor I, in? I am not, I'm the kind of person that will love to go on the Ferris wheel, and I don't mm-hmm. mind um, a carousel. Uh, I love some of the Disney rides where you're in a boat floating along real nicely and have things to look at because my bot, my brain's interaction with my body in space is always kind of tenuous. And when I was a very young child, five, six years old, we used to go to Coney Island Park near Cincinnati, and my siblings, all the four of them and my parents, loved the roller coaster rides that drop this way and turn left and go right and go in the dark. I would sit out at the age of five or six. I was called a baby. I was insulted. I was laughed at. My body and the interaction of that with my brain is overwhelmed by the sensation of being thrashed about or dropped or turned suddenly. Um, It's just the way my brain works. And in all my life, I'm now 66, I have never learned how to be able to anticipate curves and drops and things like that. I I have a lot of experience. It just bothers me. So I've never gone on rides like that, but I'm the grandfather who always rides on the carousel with their kids. And when the horse goes up and down, that's about what I can take. (laughs) (laughs) And other people laugh, and I've learned how to say, thank you. (laughs) 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 As opposed to getting all upset about it and then trying to prove them wrong and then terrifying myself, which is what I did when I was a little kid, um, and I finally realized I don't need to do this. You know, if I don't like that kind of roller coaster, I don't have to go on that. So, hmm. Now you touched on a really good point, uh, Dr. Mike, because you're talking about how being comfortable in your skin versus falling victim to peer pressure, and also potentially a learning experience. The thing I thought about was when children are learning how to swim. Sometimes parents will throw their children into the water and say swim and some let them, you know, get into the shallow end and learn how to swim. Uh, My my father was a Navy guy and he taught all five of the children. I observed, I did, I don't remember this. I've blocked in my own memory, but Mm. my, I saw my little brother is three and a half years younger than I, when he was about seven years old, my father decided time for you to learn how to swim. We rode out in a boat. He threw him over the edge. Mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. that incredibly clearly, and he thrashed about and then got his arms and legs in sync. We were only maybe 20 feet from the shoreline at a very calm uh, reservoir in western Massachusetts, and my dad, mm-hmm. I remember him saying when my brother's thrashing about in the water, I said, can I jump in and help him? They said, no, they'll learn, just like you did. 
And I, I like, mm-hmm. I do not remember being thrown in the water, but that's the way he taught us. So he just pitched us in and we sink or swim. He was, he was ready to grab any one of us that went under the water and couldn't manage to get up on top again. But mm-hmm. we all learned how to swim that day. Now with mm-hmm. my own children, I did, we went to swimming classes when they were 18 months old <laughs> and they got used to the water and we went to swimming pools and I gave them buoyancy instructions and they had swimmies on their arms because I was not going to subject my children or my grandchildren to the same kind of trauma that was evident in my little brother, but he's a great swimmer now and doesn't, he does not remember being thrown into the water. He's just simply blocked that out of his memory. It's very interesting Mm -hmm. how that happens. Some things that are just too much to deal with, our brains have a way of kind of safe locking that into a special reservoir in, in our mind so that consciously we can't think of it. Yeah. And we've had people on where we're talking about accessing your subconscious. Um, and like you said, your body, your brain is protecting you. So how do you, I mean, it could be a, a, a fear from childhood that you keep repeating this pattern and you, every time you reach it, reach it in every different circumstance, you still are overwhelmed and won't take that next step. That is true. And I think the, the objective that I have either in individual consultations or in large group settings is to not only give the knowledge of how emotions interact with our perceptions and our and our uh, uh, ability to think through a matter or react to it or act on it. It's not only the knowledge, but it's the skill of being able to work towards resolution. And, and that becomes absolutely the key in, in unlocking the, the chains that bind us or defusing the, the power that is exerted over our lives when we cannot come to resolution. Uh, we either run away, we abandon it, or we try to fight it, um, or we just succumb. And there's an, another alternative, which is resolving the emotion as it was intended to actually work out in our lives. Mm, okay. Resolving the emotion. I want to come back to that part. Because uh, you, you've been a pastor on television for over 18 years, and when you're talking about working towards resolution, I have a question as, as, as it relates to the method. Okay. So... Uh, one scary movie that I just saw this weekend that I absolutely loved was uh, Doctor Doctor Sleep, right? It just came out over this weekend. Yeah. It had a lot of you know, like you said, spooky noises and all that to make it uh, visually appealing and scary in other instance, instances. And it made me think of when I was a teenager. And as a teenager, we would go to church, and at church they would say you shouldn't have, you should wait till you get married to have sex and things like that. Okay, so that's one message. And then we would go to the movie theater and watch Freddy Krueger or any other horror movie. The girl that was most open and having sex, she was always the first person to die. So, right, subconsciously or subliminally, it was the same message, but it was a giving in two different platforms. Uh, I wanted to get your take on the media as it relates to fear. Uh, that's an interesting lead-in for that particular question. The media, <laughs> of course, the media uh, of of a wide, wide variety. It's not just movies and and things that are visual. It's also radio and now all the electronic means by which sound can be communicated. It's also um, print, uh, where something can be written down or or shown in pictures or graphics. It can. There's so there's many different media, the singular is medium, by which a message can be communicated. The interesting part is media providers or content providers have studied since really the beginning of media presentations back in several thousand BC, what are people looking to get from that media? What's the content they want? And what is the best delivery method for persuasion? 
Now it's mostly not for pure information. That would be so dry and so boring that the media would not be acceptable to the regular population. And there's got to be an agenda, if you will, something that the message is driving towards. So the very best um, media content uh, providers who do Star Wars or Disney movies, or they study human behavior, human desires, the interactions, and they create a message that either manipulates or plays to the way most people respond. The, the media content providers who don't study that don't have a great message and it's not usually well received and monetarily it won't uh, return much of the box office simply because they have not adequately thought through how do human beings interact with their sense of reality and why do they do that. So the content is put into a medium of communication that has automatically an agenda of some kind attached to it by the content provider uh, to be able to influence or even direct how the recipients of that media um, re will respond. Uh, that is, they, they play to fear, they play to joy. You'll never see a slasher movie on a Hallmark channel because the Hallmark people have studied one particular segment of the population and what it is they're looking for. So virtually every movie that comes onto the Hallmark Channel has the same basic plot, same kind of characters, and same kind of resolution. And the people who buy that media are thrilled by that and continue to buy it. It's, it's purely a monetary uh, process. On the other hand, people who like slasher movies and blood and guts and gore, there's a whole host of people just as active as Hallmark is in creating startle and disgust and fear and anger and frustration and, and terror uh, in a population because that's what they're willing to pay for. Usually, a terrifying situation which actually is unsafe, very, very few people will monetize that and pay for it. Is it possible that you could go, well, let's say paintball. Is paintball... Um, where you actually get shot, but you're not dead, um, something people will pay for, pay to do. Yes, it, it is. But in a, in a real sense, they know they're not going to die. They're going to get splattered with pain. It's going to be fun. If somebody were in a mall and pulled out an AR-15 and started shooting people, when that happens, the reality is everyone is terrified. There is no monetizing that. And you cannot commercialize some of the gun violence or things that have happened in our culture, um, specifically, there, there will not be a Disney ride about some of the school shootings. It will never happen because you cannot monetize that level of fear. So, mm -hmm. so it really has to do with, it really has to do with what people will purchase or pay money for that aligns with their sense of the agenda. And the content providers that do that extremely well know exactly how to play that game. I want to ask you about uh, these things were what, uh, almost 60 years apart, but they received the same result. And in this fear, we're talking about, like you said, uh, there's an unknown, and you're, you want to be fear, you want to be afraid. And then there's one where you ha there's the unknown, like you have no idea that it's coming, and then you surmise, did it happen or not? Okay. So the first time that this happened, in my mind, is 1938, and that was an audio uh, version on the radio of the War of the Worlds, right? right? And then 60 years later, I remember Peter Jennings on World News Tonight saying, can you please stop calling the station it's not real, because we had the same exact response after Independence Day had come out. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> so, I wanted to get your take on that because we're talking about, you know, these are two different generations and maybe are we wiser 
or the more things change, the more it, they stay the same, depending on medium. Well, the, it's actually probably three generations apart. Uh, There's another generation in the middle that would be, when you look at 60 years, about every 25 is a generation, 25 to 30. So the people who were, let's say, of uh, young adult age in 1938 and the people who are that same age in 1958 or 68, and then the people the same age in 1998 are from three different generations. What's interesting is that I believe there is a segment of the population that do not take into account what might be called a logical explanation for something. They, they have preferred to believe that something that is illogical or, or violates conventional thinking. And, and the question really is how many people in the world are like that? There, there are some because otherwise you wouldn't have people clicking on links on their computer thinking they're going to get free tickets if they just click this link and turn in their bank account number. I mean, people still do that. <laughs> so so there's, a, there's a, a percentage of the population that will have a suspension of logic or they actually think in an illogical fashion. 1938, there had not been a precedent in modern history of aliens, of a description of aliens coming against the world and bombs going off. They had people in that generation had been born during World War I so they're now 17, 18 years old, 20, you know, after they, uh, probably 20 years since World War I ended. And they remember stories of or reports about the big war. They lived through the 20s. They're halfway through the Depression. And then a radio, which was still pretty unusual in 1938, comes on with very realistic sounds, people screaming and ter- being terrified and it was enough to create a semblance of reality for people who were listening. Now, in that day, people were much less visually cued because television hadn't been invented. So you had very vibrant auditory, uh, the Lone Ranger, um, all uh, the family stories, Rin Tin Tin. You had these stories where the audio portions were designed to create living images in the minds of those who were gathered around the radio to listen. That's what happened with War of the Worlds. And they, they occasionally would make a small break. This is just a radio broadcast. Please do not be panicked. But people didn't, you know, when, as soon as a radio interruption, they run to the kitchen and get something to eat so they didn't hear that. In 1998, the Independence Day really relied less on the audio and much more on the visual. But by then, the ability to create a visual uh, scene that is so realistic, your brain cannot say that's not real. I remember in uh, 1975, Ford, 75, five or six, when the first Star Wars movie came out. We were in a full-size theater. Nobody had small screens to watch that stuff on. And the, the very first scene is this tiny little uh, inner space vehicle flying along, and then comes the next one, and it's just a tip, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger. And your brain is going, holy cow, how did they make something that big? Because your mind tells you what your eyes see is real and they had learned to make something that wasn't Godzilla hokey from Japan. It was actually realistic. And even when you say to yourself, I know that's not real. Then you get to Jurassic Park, you find dinosaurs seeing and is believing. You see a dinosaur running after somebody and just, and eat and the raptors killing somebody. You say that, that is real. So there's some, portion of the population that recognize its fantasy, but there's a portion of the population that does not. And those are the people who become very, very terrified by um, experiences that are either visual or auditory or however the medium is working. 
Let me ask you, because you were talking about we didn't have the small screens back then, and I remember there were certain parts with uh, Dr. Sleep, and I just have to keep plugging. I really loved it. But anyway, there were parts that um, I wanted to stop and rewind it (laughs) or go up and go to the bathroom or pick up popcorn. And because I could not, I was further enthralled with the film. And today we have so many distractions when we watch it at home. Do you think that when we have those terror or those we want to uh, experience that we're missing out if we're not in the theater where it's completely dark and you have no other choice but to watch the movie? I, I think that's a realistic uh, struggle that filmmakers have is to draw people into the big environment, which isn't as big as they used to be. I mean, now it's you know there's 16 plex movie theaters, so everything is. 75 people at a time instead of 3,000 at a time. The big movie theaters, when I started going to movies as a little kid, were absolutely gigantic. Uh, and one woman screams from halfway across the hall, and everyone is terrified by that. That, that kind of thing doesn't happen as much anymore. But there are right. people for whom their visual acuity, their, the ability to focus the, their eyes on a very small screen on their handheld phone and watch a movie, their brain can create the uh, image without borders. When, if you just look out, unless you have tunnel vision, um, you just look out, your eyes have a blind spot above and below and to each side. The bridge of your nose is there, but your eyes don't see the bridge of your nose, but it doesn't see black. It just, your brain creates a visual image on a platform, and then your mind takes meaning from that. Uh, one of the illustrations I use is a Korean word for bread, which is pyang. And pyang is, uh, looks like two eyeballs and a unibrow and a little mouth or something. To me, it's, I mean, I don't read Korean, so I can see it clearly. I understand with my visual uh, ability what the shapes are, but I derive no meaning from that because it do- I can't read Korean. If I look away, I cannot reproduce it. Mm-hmm. However, when I see the word bread or if I knew Korean and I look at Pyeong, then I would say, oh, yeah, I know that word. makes me think of uh, you know, fresh warm bread and butter and I'm going to go get a sandwich. So the, the, the fact that I can see something clearly does not mean that my mind gains understanding from that. That's a different process. <clears throat> so you have things that are optical illusions that you're like a mirage. Let's just take that for example. Um, the heat that is on the surface of a warm roadway or a desert or something like that actually has properties at which it reflects the sky above it. If you're seeing the reflection of the sky on the surface as if there was a mirror laid there. The density of hot air down low right at a roadway becomes reflective of light from above. So you're seeing the blue sky reflect off the roadway. However, your brain, especially when you're dehydrated or overly hot, cannot distinguish that from a pond of water. You can't. You're, so your, your eyes are seeing something, but your mind is taking a different message off of that platform, that visual platform, and then you are understanding what your mind has understood, not what your eyes have seen, which is why magic works. That's why, I mean, that's how it all works. So, so when you are, there are people who are holding a cell phone and they're looking at a screen two inches by two inches, and their brain creates a visual um, awareness that is as big as if you're in a movie theater. There's other people that they're too distracted by everything else going on around them, so they don't see that. So each human being is going to have his or her own unique approach to each of the sensory stimulus that come into their brain, what they hear, what they see, what they feel, what they remember, what they imagine, um, what their soul feels. You know, I mean, there's all those senses that, that have to do with how your mind gains an awareness and then responds to that awareness. 
Okay. Okay. And so I mentioned Independence Day, so that was over 20 years ago. And it hasn't been on a grand scale yet to the mass media, but what are your takes on, we're talking about terror here or fear, in the realm of virtual reality? Virtual reality, reality is an interesting scientific or, or uh, <clears throat> mechanical way of changing the interaction of a human being with the world around them through their eyesight and somewhat through their sound. And it may actually be even with sensation. You can have uh, virtual reality environments, even movie theaters, that uh, spray water when somebody's spitting or if it's raining, you, they actually can create with cold air on your skin the feeling of droplets. I mean, you'll, wa- you'll wipe the water off even though there's no water there. So, so the ability to manipulate the way in which people are experiencing reality is what that's all about. There are people for whom that's overwhelming, that they, they cannot deal with all of the stimulus that's happening. They won't put rea- uh, the virtual reality goggles on. They won't wear them. They won't sit in a theater that the chairs vibrate or they just won't do it. And other people absolutely love that. They live for that thrill. So it really has to do with the individual's interaction with how they perceive the environment and then what their response is to that, to that perception. Okay, okay. So I want to turn, uh, turn the channel, <laughs> pun intended, and ask you a history question, a history-related question, that is, sure. as it relates to your life. So in 1492, the general consensus was the world was flat, and if you left Spain, uh, the dragons would have gotten you before you fell off the earth. And in 2019, there seems to be a perception that if you leave the United States, then <laughs> the world is still flat, and you might fall off the planet if you leave the United States. So there's a fear or there's a comfortability of not leaving these states, and they miss out on what the world has to offer. And you've been around over 20 countries. So what was the trepidation, or did you have any trepidation starting out, and did it get easier to go to different countries and experience their cultures? When I was young, my uh, my grandparents had a cottage in East Otis, Massachusetts. We lived in Cincinnati for most of my growing up years, Chicago or Philadelphia, but mostly in, in the Midwest of Ohio. So our family vacations were getting in the car, driving for a day and a half to get to East Otis, and then driving home. That was my extent of travel. Um, I've always been a reader. I've loved documentaries. I've loved travel uh, videos. I've you know, I always imagined what it would be like to be able to travel more. When, because of the advantage of, of several different occupations that I've had over the last 45 or 50 years, it has a, allowed me to broaden the uh, horizons, literally, of my life so that I could travel to further and further places. In most of my travels, I have been a team leader, or responsible for other people rather than just for myself. So we have built into our travel uh, safety systems, the ability to communicate clearly with one another. Uh, We've taken uh, teams to Dominican Republic. We built a a campground down in Dominican Republic over a seven-year period with high school kids. Uh, We started a school in Honduras, which is the number one murder capital of the world. Um, so we start a school there. It's, it's somewhat dangerous. It's dangerous. I lived in Washington, D.C. I've lived in Chicago. I live in Philadelphia. Those are dangerous places, too. And the reality is that if you are careless about your planning and the awareness of what's going on around you, there is literally no place in the world that is perfectly 100% safe. So, there, so it behooves any traveler to be well-versed on on themselves, what they're capable of, and also the environment in which they are uh, currently placed and what that is capable of. And then you, you take the precautions. So we traveled very, very safely um, all over the world. I mean, I've been to China and Hong Kong just before it was turned back to the uh, 
communist government. We were in Rwanda and Burundi a couple of months before the war broke out there. Uh, I've been in, in uh, Morocco, Morocco uh, when there were some tensions there in Israel, when there were tensions on the Golan Heights. <clears throat> and so there are, but there are tensions everywhere in the world. And so one either travels thoughtlessly or arrogantly, that's where most people get into trouble. Uh, mm-hmm. They figure nothing can happen to them. They are, they are without fear, which I don't advise. And other people are overcome by fear, which I also don't advise. There, there is a very good place for the exposure emotions of being fear, be, fearful, being cautious, being vigilant, uh, having some anxiety about the world around you, which you cannot control, uh, and knowing what you can. And so, so to me, the fear is advisable. Um, it's interesting that you raise the, the concept that in 1492, the world believed that everything was flat, and if you got to the edge of the sea, you would fall off. There's a great deal of research into how writing and, and thoughts were occurring in that day in 1492 and the years before that, uh, that most people actually did not believe that. It was artists who created a sense and those who wanted to incite fear in others. But clearly, Christopher Columbus and the other explorers of the world were fully convinced that the world, they, they couldn't have navigated without understanding the world was round and that the world went around the sun and the stars stayed in place. That, had, that was common knowledge. So, so the reality that, that everyone in the world believed everything was flat, like a pan, uh, is really not entirely accurate, especially among those who were explorers and those who had the resources to travel. Um, in 2019, the idea of leaving the United States, there are people that have not left the county or even the town they were born in, and they have stayed right. there. And the question is, is that because of desire? Is it because they, they delight in what is home and what is familiar? Or is it out of fear that they will come to some harm or uh, be overwhelmed by things that are, quote, out there. And I can't answer. I mean, each person would have to answer that for themselves. I absolutely love traveling. So is my wife. I've taken my children into extremely dangerous territories. My 10-year-old daughter went with us to Hong Kong and Taiwan. Uh, We had trouble on the plane in the air, and I taught her how to be comfortable uh, we're, we are mortal, and so we're comfortable with the fact that someday we're going to die. So instead of having a terrifying response, we, we have a different approach to that. And the plane actually didn't fall out of the sky, although it dropped probably 60 or 70 feet, and all the food trays and everything went flying all over the place. And, and it was, it was nerve-wracking for many people in the plane turned blanch white and threw up, and, I mean, there was that was an incredibly strong reaction. We didn't have that reaction. And my children often look at me and say, oh, Dad, you, weren't, you didn't react with fear. I said, no, I didn't. Let me tell, why, tell you why. So I coached them. I've always done that when they were young and now that they're older, older adults um, in how to perceive and then respond and then choose how to act. That those, those parts of the process are they're learnable, they're teachable, uh, and, and one can practice them. Mm. And, and you're teaching abroad as well, I believe, in, in the conversation we had prior to recording, you were talking about some similarities or you were finding similarities in different cultures or threads that you could weave in where it unified multiple cultures that maybe on the outside didn't seem like they would ever mesh together. I think that's important for a, t- a teacher or somebody who's imparting either skills or knowledge or both when they come into any audience of any kind to understand how does that audience gain its perceptions, how does it hold their values, what is it that's important, what is it, how does it fit together. So when I'm teaching four-year-olds, if I'm not aware of their culture, their language, 
their motivations to act, I'm not going to be able to teach a group of four-year-olds anything. If I go to Hungary and I am not aware of what the Eastern Bloc has gone through in their lifetime, that the current conditions, uh, their senses of wariness about Westerners, about white men, about people taller than they are, whatever the issues are, if I'm not aware of that, I reduce my effectiveness to transmit both knowledge and skills. So I do a great deal of study. I do a great deal of listening. That's the book that I wrote is called Why Do People Act That Way? And I derive the concepts in there largely from listening to people for 10 years without mm-hmm. having an agenda. I just let them talk about what they were experiencing, what they were afraid of, what they were angry about, what they were happy about, how did they resolve uh, conflicts or, or the issues of their lives. And as I be- listened for years, I began to understand how a consistent way people move towards resolution or thwart resolution. And that's, that's why I wrote what I've written. That's why I teach what I teach. Thank you for that. Thanks for that clarification too, because that could also be a fear or a terror that you don't understand your audience and that's where misunderstandings arise. Correct. And one of the things that if you ask kind of the average person on the street, uh, what is the number one fear that human beings have? <clears throat> the standard answer is fear of public speaking. That, mm-hmm. That's the standard answer. I just referred to this in a, a matter I was teaching over the weekend, and I did some study into uh, how does that idea get communicated. And the idea of public speaking is actually not what most people are afraid of. It is hearing their own voice in a silent void. If you're in a room and you're facing away from the host of a party and everyone's chatting and the host suddenly raises her glass and says, can I have your attention, please? And everyone stops talking. But you have one more thing you want to... <laughs> the, the fear of having your own voice be the only sound in the room is what most people are afraid of. So when you stand in front of a group and they go, tap, 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 okay, can we have it quiet, please? Here comes our speaker. That moment is what people are afraid of. Mm. It's very interesting research. I was just absolutely fascinated by that. Yeah, and it seems where with the, all, the, all the mechanisms that we have today that make it easier, that's still the number one fear. It's so. still the number one fear, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if we'll solve that problem today. But, um, no, yeah, probably not. But in a radio interview like this or a podcast interview, it's one voice talking to one voice. And there could be 10 million people listening or four. But between you and me, we don't have any perception of that at all. It's when you go into a, a even television, television show I was on, I was part of a panel of five pastors and people called in all over the country and would ask these challenging or intuitive or sometimes fairly silly questions about the Bible or Christianity or spiritual life or whatever they wanted to ask about. And our moderator would then redirect, but we had the single lens of a camera aimed in our face, the red light came on, you're talking to a piece of glass and the camera person behind there. We were worldwide, and so we could have 30,000 people watching. It didn't matter to me because I had one camera person and one lens to look at. But when you get up in front of a group, I spoke to 4,000 teenagers at an international youth conference, and the amount of humanity, uh, the sound of their breathing, their applause, was excuse me was was really amazing to my mind um it created a huge adrenaline rush uh which i was not prepared for which must be what rock and rollers get every single night when people are screaming or ranting raving and throwing their clothes on the stage is that feeling of an amazing energy that comes from human beings right in front of you that you can process. And some people are utterly terrified. I mean, to the point where they cannot function and other people live for that moment 
because it's so thrilling. So one person will be terrified and another person will be ecstatic. Mm-hmm. Indeed, I think I want to use that the swimming analogy in that if you jumped right in and you probably weren't told you're going to speak to a large group, you couldn't conjure up the fear because isn't that fear that projection to the past or the future? It absolutely is. For some people, it, it will be their experience or their lack of experience can be the trigger to almost any emotion. They can be in love with that. They can be terrified of that. They can be angry about that. Uh, they can be overwhelmed and wounded by that. The, the reality is that the mix of ways in which a person responds in some ways is predictable, but in some ways it can be also surprising. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm thinking uh, not just sports, but there's stories of Mariah Carey or other entertainers where in their life story, they weren't the headliner, right? And so there was this other yeah. big person that's supposed to perform in front of this crowd. Something happens, laryngitis or injury in sports, and they can no longer play or perform. And then you're thrust into that, and it's kind of it makes or breaks your career. That's your moment in the spotlight, if you will. Exactly, in the literal spotlight. Um, there, that, that becomes an interesting study, and it almost will be a fresh study for every human being that goes through those kinds of experiences. I raised four children from uh, birth to their adulthood, and we also had a foster daughter uh, who came to us as a teenager, and she still is part of our family now 41 years later. And what was interesting to see the process, four children born from the same biological mix of two human beings raised in the same family in the same town, and I have one child who loves being in front. Give him a microphone, he just lights up like crazy, and another one blanches and will not touch a microphone and would walk out on a group if he was even identified as my son the speaker's son, they, they don't even be identified as that. It's very, very interesting to see uh, the difference, which goes to the nature-nurture question, yeah. and I think it's both. There are some people whose nature is shy or private or individualized, and there are others who are connected and social, and they derive their sense of self by their connections to other people. And, and I cannot – my four children are very different. Uh, in that mix of my grand, I have 13 grandchildren, and they are crossing. We're all from the same biological group, but right. there are some that are showmen and singers and give them a microphone at the age of three, and they're up on stage prancing around, and others put their face down on the floor and won't look at anybody. So shout out to Aretha Franklin. You're saying it's re- respect. You have to respect their wishes, and it made me think of helicopter parents or some others that want their kids to be famous, or you not even just to be famous, you want to push your kids into something that they may tell you, like you're just saying, no, I don't want to do it, (laughs) and you have to ultimately respect their wishes. The respect, I think, has to come out of a desire to discover who your child or your spouse or your neighbor or a person with whom you're speaking, to discover that person and not launch an agenda for your own reasons on that person. That, that is, that is uh, extremely challenging in today's world where there are parents that have in mind what is the definition of success, and, and therefore they push their child towards that definition of success, and so you end up with a person who is artistic being pushed towards STEM, and their brain doesn't work that way, but now the conflict is on. But somebody who is oriented towards STEM, and, and they're taking the dance class, that's where the friction is. So it really is discovering the person who has been provided to your family, birthed in your family or adopted in your family or has come to your family, discovering that person and then allowing them to determine who they are and how they best fit it and then coaching and guiding and supporting while they discover that. That, that to me, my goal was to raise successful adults 
while I had the privilege of having them be in my home. They were not for me to manipulate or to coerce or for me to live my life through them. The definition of parenting for me is raising successful adults while their children and youth in my home. And that's what we've, we've taught that. So then the question is, when they're in trouble, what is a good method of teaching accountability? How do you teach them to apologize? How do you teach them to forgive themselves for something they've done that's been uh, destructive? Um, how do you teach them to celebrate? How do you teach them to love and to be loved? Those are incredibly important adult skills, but babies aren't born with that. So you either run their lives or you guide their lives. And other than a tragedy, a person will be a child in a home for 18 to 20 years, and they will be an adult for 60 to 80 years, and so the majority of life is lived as an adult. That childhood experience should be a good foundation for adulthood, not uh, something you have to flee or break away from in order to survive as an adult. And, and also that's how at the top of the hour or at the beginning we were talking in the intro about the holiday season, right? And some of the turmoil yeah. or fear or terror yeah. is because you're an adult, but you're an adult in the outside world. But when you go back home, you're still a child in some, in some paradigm. And because of social bindings, then you can be kind of either coerced or forced back into patterns that were appropriate or common, maybe not appropriate, but common, for a three-year-old, five-year-old, seven-year-old, 11-year-old, um, you're forced back into those instead of having the freedom to become who you are now and exhibit that within your family. That, that becomes a source of tremendous family stress. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, very, so very get... real. And we're in the season where that happens between now and the first of the year. This, this is yeah. a time that's very traumatic for a lot of people. Absolutely. And so I want to get your take on the other side of that, because in our family, we were kind of taught that too, uh, a little osmosis going on, but you don't know your partner or whom you're dating until you see them during the holidays with their family. (laughs) Uh, There there is a very, very real uh, force in play that has to do with destroying relationships when families of origin are engaged. That, that is, can be extremely difficult. Uh, mm-hmm. My wife and I, I grew up in a family that had a significant amount of dysfunction in it, uh, challenge. My mother died when I was 15. She was 42. My father committed suicide six years later. In that time period, he had married my stepmother, who also had five kids. We had five kids. And so mm-hmm. we had an incredible amount of stress the stress factors were amazingly high. My wife's family is a farming family that for five generations lived on the same piece of land in uh, Albion, New York. Farmers, hard workers, everyone pulling together, common goal, you know, struggling for finances, and they all worked together. They, my wife picked up rocks in the fields for 25 cents an hour, and I was caddying at my dad's golf club for $60 an hour at the same time when we were both 11 or 12 years old. So she came from an entirely different world, and I was enveloped in that world. And when she came into my family of origin, the stress was just overwhelming. And so we kind of made a decision as a couple, we're, we're going to be Western New Yorkers, not Ohio. And we just we made that as a clear choice. We just made it as a choice because of the amount of stress and friction that I was experiencing that uh, I just had to say that's not for me. I love my family now. We get along very, very well as long as I'm there 30 hours or less, yeah. as long as I can get away. And that's just reality for me. <laughs> what is it, that uh, 72 hours before the fish goes bad or something like that? <laughs> yeah, and for me, it's 30 hours. I mean, I, we're laughing about it now, but I know the 30 hour. I can stay t- a day and to the next lunch, and after that, my stress level starts to increase to where it's extremely uncomfortable. So for me, it's 30 hours, and, wow. and I understand that. There are people, 72 hours you can do a weekend. I can't do a whole weekend. And, right. I, and after all these, I've been gone from home for 50 years. And, and still, it's just the family of origin structures are so deeply embedded in me. With everything that I know and all the skills I have, I can do 30 hours. 
so keeping with the theme with terror or fear, you, you've, you're well healed in this now, but that first year, what was the terror or fear about the blowback of not going back? Like, you're too good for us now, or um, I don't know what you heard. But no, what, well, what were there your... were 10 kids. There were 10 kids. We had about eight or nine cars. We had two houses. Nobody really knew who was going to be at dinner or sleeping where. So there was a family with almost no boundaries at all. The thing that was unnerving to me was a natural desire to have somebody care enough to say, be in by 11. All my friends in high school, they had curfews. They had to be in. They loved my life. I hated my life because it said to me, I'm not loved enough for someone to set a rule around where all my friends, I say, you, your parents love you. They adore you. That's why they want you at 11 o'clock. And I was like, no, 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 they hate me. They take away all my fun. I was like, okay, just have no rules in your life and you'll see what it's like. Well, when they got to college, some of those folks had incredibly difficult times dealing with the freedom of college. Like they were not prepared for it. And, mm-hmm. uh, but for me, it was going back into, it really wasn't terror as much as it was friction regarding how I saw myself in my world relative to what had happened when we were children growing up. And it was, my dad was an alcoholic and eventually committed suicide in his alcoholism. And so he was unpredictable. It was, it was, there was no clear structure as to how he was going to act or react uh, on any given day. So there was the, the instability of expectation was what created the friction. And I just decided I've had enough of this. I got a, I went 600 miles away to Rochester and sued technology, and I was, done, I was done with it. I didn't go back. You're gone. <laughs> and part of your technology is 50-20 communication. So uh, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that in uh, your books. I mean, you have many books and speaking engagements. So, you know, now's the time to uh, wave that flag. 50-20 Communications, a publishing company I created just so I could have a vehicle to maintain – uh, ownership and copyright of the pieces that I was doing. A lot of people write books and sell them to Amazon or something. Then Amazon puts their ISBN copyright on or their ISBN number, and they actually own the material. So you get a royalty of you know a few cents on a dollar. What I decided to do was create a publishing company so that I could own the rights to that and maintain uh, the the legal status of the pieces that I was doing. So it was easier to do that. So as I've put these various uh, works out into the public, the first one was why do people act that way with a parenthetical subtitle and what can I do about it? It's for sale on Amazon. Uh, we have an ebook, and I just finished recording an audio book which should be out in about another week or so. And so getting those pieces out there to some degree is about book sales, but much more it's about influencing influencers who are setting up speaking engagements, uh, seminars, conferences, and things like that. So it's kind of like a really fat business card. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and it is, if you want to see what I'm like, read this book because, number one, it will help you, and number two, it will give you some insight as to what can I do when I come to your conference or your company and do training. I've been teaching a seminar that I wrote in 2012 uh, consistently called Why Do People Act That Way? That, and I've done more business, small business um, conferences than any other topic. But I've done churches, I've done pastors groups, parents, teenagers, I've done some preteen groups. I did 200 football coaches in Buffalo for youth football. Uh, when we were training them, we had four hours, and I said, <clears throat> we can talk about what do your student athletes do? Why do they act the way they do? We can talk about parents, and immediately the room erupted, and they all started laughing and talking at the same time. And I said, mm-hmm. uh, what are you laughing about? And they said, parents. Mm-hmm. We love working with kids. We have no idea why do parents do what they do. So we spent four hours talking about why do parents do what they do. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, very. My business section is called why do customers do what they do. So helping, especially the entrepreneurial solo proprietor who doesn't have someone to talk to or coach them, they often are ready to quit business because of two or three or four uh, customers that they just can't figure out. And so that's what I, I can direct the material to any one of those audiences. 
Wow. And we are at the top of the hour, but if you don't mind, if you have a few extra minutes, I do want want to ask you this. Okay, great. So the topical question, why do they act that way? And you're talking about the athletes and they're wondering about the parents. I do want to get your take on the NCAA because in 2021, uh, they, the athletes can own their likeness and uh, they get paid for being right. a student athlete. Uh, how are parents going to factor in like that? Are they going to have their hands out? Or what's your take on this whole um, wave that's happening? That's really going to be that's going to be probably up to each individual athlete in the relationship they have with their parents. As a, a, obviously, a person who's 45 years old is not going to be in the NCAA. It's somebody who's 17 to 22, 25, somewhere in there. They're going to be younger people who haven't <clears throat> achieved adult status yet and in some cases are still minors uh, when they have an incredible amount of money. Money is power. And so the way in which power flows within the family is the way the money is going to flow. And so in some families, the individual earning the money is the one with the power. And the, in other families, the person who controls the money is the one who has the power, even if that's not the athlete. Um, it's going to be fascinating because 100 years ago, when a- amateur athletes were engaged in sport, the amount of money around that was minimal, and maybe zero. <clears throat> now, with television, uh, rights of media, the number of media outlets, the way in which sports entertainment uh, is monetized, the amount of money is just extraordinary. It really is unimaginable to the average person. And so how that's going to affect people is, uh, is going to be resolved on an individual uh, platform rather than a universal. You will not be able to write enough laws to actually regulate human behavior as when money is involved. You, you, have, you have to observe and be very good at analyzing because you cannot predict what's going to happen. Definitely, definitely. That's a, a great note to stop at. And so you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. Shout out to David that couldn't make it today. And Dr. Mike, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Let's stay in touch. Hamza, very fun. Very, very enjoyable conversation. Cheers to you. Thanks.